so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Lindsay, I went today to uh, see a tailor because I had a um, sport coat that I bought at the store. She was looking at my arms and she goes, you know what? You're the most crooked customer I have. (laughs) (laughs) I guess guess because my shoulders are uneven. So... Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week, the week before the SBC annual meeting, actually, in California, is Brent Leatherwood. Hello, Lindsay Nicolay. I always say your name like that. Brent Leatherwood. I know. I feel like like Coming I'm, down. Come on down. The like price I'm, is right. I know. I feel like I'm like walking out to the Tonight Show or something, <laughs> which we we have explained this before, but I, I am your uh, Ed McMahon to your Johnny Carson. No, I don't really think so. Yeah, for the purposes of the podcast. I mean, you have a leading role in the podcast. Was Ed McMahon, did he talk very long? No, no, but that's the thing. I'm just kind of like your permanent guest That is hardly true. (laughs) Hardly true. But uh, I don't know about you being the permanent guest or sidekick because you take up most of the real estate on this podcast. And I would just leave it there. Ed McMahon was actually a a bigger physical individual than Johnny Carson. So that's that actually the analogy still works. I'm not so sure about that. But before we digress even further, let's talk about what's been happening lately. And we will start off with important articles that we have been featuring at ERLC.com this week. And the first one actually goes along with the second that I will share, but it's by Greg R. Allison. And so after, you remember the the infamous incident where during the confirmation hearings for Kintaji Brown, uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn asked her the question, what is a woman? Can you define a woman? And then the the Twitter sphere was going crazy. Believers were talking about uh, being able to define a woman and realize that the specifics are a little harder than we might think. So we know what a woman is and what a man is according to the Bible. But when it comes to just being able to define that, it's kind of hard. And so we were able to get two scholars to help us with this. So Greg R. Allison, he his article is titled, What is a Man? Looking at a Historical, Contemporary, and Essential Answer. And then Katie McCoy followed up with, What is a Woman? God's Intent for Sex and Gender. And our colleague, Jason Thacker, who is over our research institute, commissioned these pieces. 
And they are so helpful. They're a little longer than our usual 800 to 1,000 words, but they are well worth your time. And what's neat is that at the bottom of each article is a response from the other author, the corresponding author, as they read through Uh, the corresponding piece. And so for Greg's piece, I'm going to just give you the definition that he had for what is a man that he unpacked. So his definition that he was operating off of is, a man is a human being created in the divine image in the male type of humankind and who inherently expresses the common human capacities and the common human properties in ways that are typical of and fitting for a man. So that gets your wheels turning there. And he, again, he looks at history and he looks at contemporary times and then he he gives, uh, he unpacks that definition for what he believes the right answer is according to God's word. And then the answer that Katie is operating, the definition that she is operating off of is this one, and it's a shorter definition. A woman is a biologically female human being. And so she explains why she uses that as the definition for what is a woman. I would, again, encourage you to go read these articles. They are well worth your time, and they will equip you to be able to answer these questions, questions that in other parts of the world and then in other times, recent times in our history, would have been incomprehensible. We would have said, well, why are we even asking this? Duh, we know what this means. But now in our confused culture in the midst of the sexual crisis that we're in, it's imperative that Christians be able to look at God's Word and know what God's Word says about our biological sex and our gender and be able to translate that to our culture. The idea for us focusing this particular week on sexual ethics and the biblical definition uh, of sexuality uh, stems from just uh, the the larger culture that we're in where it just seems like however you feel lets a person just kind of redefine reality and as Christians we we know that that is not accurate uh, but this this really all just kind of came to that kind of cultural uh, apex moment when the question was posed to future Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown Jackson where she was asked, what is a woman? Ultimately, her her answer, I mean, in the context of a Supreme Court hearing, that that's, that's really irrelevant. But it just sparked all these different conversations where people just had all sorts of definitions out there that in many instances had, had no basis in, you know, biology, but certainly had no basis in, in Scripture. And I think these two pieces, uh, especially because, as you mentioned, the fact that they interact with each other is, is great. And, and Katie McCoy was actually able to join us uh, for an event that, that Jason hosted, and uh, along with uh, Andrew Walker and Dean and Sarah this week that we can link to, where they talked more about these issues. And the reason that's so relevant is because if if you're unable to get these essential things right, these things that are readily apparent, that our, our own children know, hey, that's that's a boy, hey, that's a girl. Like, it, if, if you don't get those things right, the downstream effects, the, the consequences of that, I would submit, lead us to where we are right now in our culture, where there is so much confusion and, in some ways, intended 
confusion. Actually, Katie unpacks that quite a bit, how there are uh, actors out there in the public square who are intentionally trying to mislead because they've got certain agenda items that they want to accomplish. And in some instances, those those are political agenda items. And uh, so this is a, a very broad conversation. These two pieces right here help center this and should help to clarify for for any Christians who might be seeing all this and either have some confusion themselves or maybe some doubt or even some questions, these pieces help to answer them and provide the basis from which we can go forth and engage the wider culture uh, with truth and with grace. And so that's why I think these two pieces are incredibly helpful. I'm I'm really uh, thankful that uh, our colleague Jason Thacker had the idea to to focus uh, on this area. It's great work this week. And I actually think it's nice that it came out after the Supreme Court hearing hoopla, because then a lot of the noise and just the babble about it has died down so that it's not, that the gravity of it, the importance of it is not lost and ears are ready to hear again when Mm emotions are less volatile. Right, well, because at that moment, there there was so much just social media, hot takes, much more heat than light. And these two pieces, what did, what did they both come out to? About approximately 2,000 words? Like, these are in-depth pieces that, that explore this subject matter. There's a lot of light here. And, and that's why these are refreshing. And, and you're right, had, had we just produced these in the immediate moment, it, they would have gotten lost in in all of that noise. You're exactly right. So I'm I'm glad that you shepherded this to come this week. Well, I'm not sure I did. The Lord usually causes it to work out. So all the credit to Him, truly. But I also want to point out that faithful Christians might expand upon these definitions or land in a different place, never less than what God's Word says, you know, that we believe that God has created two biological sexes, male and female, and you can not change those. But the the some of the specifics worked out in these definitions, believers might wrestle with if they're answering this question. But Greg and Katie give us a wonderful place to start. And this is just, these are resources you can put in your back pocket and refer to them often. And then finally, uh, our intern, Daniel Hostetter, has an explainer, an important explainer about the State Department releasing its 2021 International Religious Freedom Report. And we cover this every year. So the State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom has this report. And each year, the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998 tasks this office with issuing a report to Congress exploring the global state of religious freedom. This is from Daniel's explainer. There are several major themes of this report, and as you would assume, there are countries of concern that we have been concerned about for a while. So it details the efforts of the Chinese Communist Party to restrict religious freedom, especially its persecution of the Uyghur Muslims that we have been advocating for, uh, because the dignity, regardless of one's religion, the dignity of every single human being, God-given, God-created dignity should be respected. And if you suppress one religion, that is going to extend to others. 
no doubt. You also probably wouldn't be surprised to hear that Afghanistan is is on that list with the Taliban's rise to power after the U.S. troops uh, pulled out of that area. There's been, there was a military coup in Burma, and so the report highlights how the Burmese government has committed, quote, an alarming escalation of grave human rights abuses. And they also point out that in India, there are some attacks on religious minorities that have been, the government has failed to prevent or stop. And you should know that the ERLC is involved in advocating for religious freedom around the world. Because again, the persecution of one group of people and one religion is not just going to stop there. And we believe, a Baptist distinctive, is that we believe that the Bible teaches that that we uh, are entitled to soul freedom, that you cannot coerce an individual to put their faith and trust in Christ. Instead, the Spirit must work and move in them, and they must make that decision for themselves as the Lord is working. And we want the freedom to be able to share the gospel with them so that, by God's grace and mercy, they might come to Him. And so that's why we're dedicated to advocating for the vulnerable, the oppressed around the world and fighting for this, this first freedom. This report is something that we uh, usually draw attention to each year uh, because it is typically a robust uh, sort of look at religious freedom around the globe. And for our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, uh, to say that protecting America's first freedom must remain a vital foreign policy priority is is good and is something that that we should affirm. Uh, and, And he went on to call Uh, upon all societies to do more to address rising forms of hate. And the report goes on to detail all the various ways that Christians and other people of religious faiths are being targeted in various nations uh, around the world. And so we need to pray not only for our missionaries who are bravely serving overseas and sharing the gospel, but also just for the societies where they are being sent into, and in many cases, we have missionaries uh, that are serving in these contexts. And and so this is certainly something that I know is dear to Southern Baptists, and I'm thankful we were able to to highlight that this week. And great job uh, by Daniel on his first piece uh, for us. Yes. Uh, one of our, our brand new interns. Yes. What a, what, a great, what a great way to lead off your tenure at the RLC. I know. And there are some stellar writers coming out of D.C. working on hard, complex topics, but being able to present them in such a way that they are accessible and understandable to someone like me. So I really appreciate that. Thank you, Daniel. And uh, as I say every week, we have a plethora of other free resources on our site please check them out. But for now, Brent, that's your look on what's happening at ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section this week, Brent, what do you have for us? Well, we start off with a disturbing development out of Washington, D.C. at the home of one of our nation's Supreme Court justices. This comes to us from the Washington Post. A man was detained by police early Wednesday morning near Brett M. Kavanaugh's Maryland home after making threats against the Supreme Court justice, according to federal and local officials. The man, described as being from California in his mid-20s, was taken into custody by police after telling officers he wanted to kill the justice, according to people familiar with the investigation. He apparently did not make it onto Kavanaugh's property in Montgomery County, but was stopped on a nearby street and was found to be carrying at least one weapon 
and burglary tools. Uh, We also know in subsequent reports he was found with a knife. These people said, speaking on condition of anonymity, to discuss the ongoing investigation. Two other individuals said the initial evidence indicates that the man was angry about the leaked draft of an opinion by the Supreme Court signaling that the court is preparing to overturn Roe v. Wade, the 49-year-old decision that guaranteed the constitutional right to have an abortion. He was also angry over a recent spate of mass shootings, the people said. So obviously, this is very disturbing. Most people would, I, I think, rightfully assume that our Supreme Court justices have some sort of uh, security detail uh, that is provided to them. Uh, But that is not accurate. The Supreme Court does have its own police force uh, for the grounds of the court itself. But when the justices go home, they are uniquely exposed uh, when compared to other uh, major federal officials, as well as even leading uh, state-level officials. And that is... That is very scary. And that is something that could be fixed. Uh, Congress could actually pass uh, some policies to help that. I, I'm, I'm actually recalling in my mind uh, a couple of years ago, uh, the RLC asked Congress to extend Secret Service protection to former vice presidents. Uh, I think most people would assume that they, kind of like U.S. presidents, have... Uh, Secret Service uh, for life. They actually do not. And that is the the same case here with our currently serving Supreme Court justice. It is very scary to think that they are as vulnerable as they are. We actually discussed that on the podcast not too long ago, the weeks all mushed together. So I can't remember how many weeks ago. You know, and this is why I'm surprised that they have not dropped the Dobbs decision yet because... It's so contentious, and the leak was so contentious, and our culture is so filled with hate right now, especially as it regards issues of abortion, and many people fear for the safety of the justices with them not having private protective detail. So I'm glad that this man was caught and that Justice Kavanaugh and his family are safe. And I do hope that maybe it will make them the powers that be, whoever they are, reconsider uh, protection or something like that for the justices leading up to the Dobbs decision than maybe right after, in mm-hmm. fact. Yeah, we'll see. I, my prediction is there will be some initial outrage, but actually I think should the Supreme Court go in the direction that the leaked draft opinion suggests it will, I actually think the outrage is is going to be limited to certain kind of far left and and pro-abortion activists. And and look, they they will probably be very loud and demonstrate in in all sorts of of ways. But I I actually think the majority of the country, a healthy majority of the country, including people that uh, identify as pro-choice, are actually going to be accepting more than I, I think we're concerned about. Because we've talked about this study before, I'm not recalling it off the top of my head who who conducted it. Uh, but there was a, a, a research firm that went and sat down personally with a significant number of uh, pro-choice activists uh, and, and individuals who identify as pro-choice. And they were just asking them uh, about abortion as an issue. And what came across to the researchers were even these people that 
were supportive of abortion did not see it as something desirable. Like, in other words, even they thought, eh, this is really not something that I want to talk about or something I, I would want to see pursued personally. And uh, I think a lot of people will will actually be uh, somewhat grateful that the issue is somewhat solved in in some instances in some states around the country. That again, that is assuming that the framework of the draft opinion it remains largely the same. So we'll see. Uh, we we are anticipating now that we are well into June. Uh, we are anticipating uh, any day now that the Supreme Court may come out with this opinion. So. Uh, We shall see very soon. Our next story comes to us from Baptist Press, but actually it was written by the RLC originally, but I'm thankful Baptist Press picked it up. And it is an explainer about the latest developments on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Lindsay, you, you asked for this and you didn't realize, but it came at a great time because it came out on the 100th day of the Russian, the illegal Russian invasion of uh, the country of Ukraine. And it says this, uh, although there has been an ongoing war since 2014, the conflict escalated significantly with the Russian invasion on February 24th. Here's an update on recent developments in the war. And it talks about things such as Russia currently controlling 20% of Ukrainian territory, uh, Western nations continuing to arm the Ukrainians, uh, and how Russia has set its sights on the Donbass region. Uh, one particular area that I want to call attention to is the claims of torture uh, in the Russian-occupied territory. So it states this, The BBC has documented numerous allegations of civilians being tortured by Russians in the region of Kursan. Claims include rape, electrocution, beatings, strangulation, and burning, including people's hands, feet, and other areas. A doctor who claims to have treated such injuries says they were tortured if they did not want to go over to the Russian side for being at rallies, for being in the territorial defense, for the fact that one of the family members fought against the separatists, and some of them even got there randomly. Overall, Ukraine claims around 15,000 suspected war crimes have been reported since the war began, with 200 to 300 more reported on a daily basis. So, I know I, I saw something this week uh, that that showed that Americans' interest, which we knew this was going to happen, but that American uh, interest in terms of like Google searches, I think that was the metric that was used, have diminished pretty significantly since the war began. And And look, this is just something that I would say we can't turn our attention away from. We all have busy lives. There are other events that are unfolding here domestically. Uh, but But the future of Ukraine and what is going on in this conflict with Russia, uh, should Russia succeed, uh, that portends some very dark days ahead because uh, Vladimir Putin has an appetite for conquest. And if he is successful in one area and it is somehow excused or uh, enabled, it seems unlikely that he would just stop there. And so all of us need to continually pay attention to what uh, goes on there as well as be praying uh, for the people of Ukraine. And it's easy to forget. I understand the temptation, especially as we are inundated seemingly every day with one tragedy after another, even if it's just having the news on this morning and hearing about a shooting on I-65 and then the next morning it's a house fire. And our finite 
ourselves are not meant to bear the weight of those things. Uh, only the Lord can bear all of those burdens, uh, but we can, what we can do, well, we can pray about how we can be involved, but we can also just pray, pray and petition the Lord to end that war. I, I can't imagine being in the midst of a war and feeling as if I was forgotten. I'm sure that that's how many in Ukraine feel. And so we have to, we have to resist the temptation to forget and fight to persistently pray. And even if something is not as small because it is affecting people, but even something like gas prices remind us, you know, every time we look at the gas prices and we are wanting to complain and we are struggling ourselves, if we could just remember, ask the Lord to help us remember to pray. Our next story also uh, takes us overseas, and this time it's to the United Kingdom, where the prime minister survived a vote of confidence. Uh, This story is from CNBC, and it reports, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson survived a vote of confidence on Monday night, but discontent over his leadership is expected to rumble on, with analysts stating that his days in office are now numbered. Monday's vote saw Johnson win the backing of most of his conservative lawmakers, but by a much slimmer margin than his supporters had hoped. The vote, triggered by his own lawmakers amid increasing dissatisfaction with his leadership, saw 211 Tory members of parliament voting in favor for the prime minister, while 148 voted against him. Johnson needed a simple majority of 180 MPs to win the vote, but the figure of 148 was worse than many expected and means that more than 40% of his own lawmakers have no confidence in the prime minister, despite his efforts to win their support. Johnson's vulnerability is thrown into stark relief when compared with that of former leader Theresa May. She had more support in a similar vote in 2018, but resigned as prime minister just six months later. So this is interesting uh, for a number of reasons to me. The United Kingdom, our alliance with them is often uh, referred to as the special relationship, and we do have a very unique uh, friendship and bond with the United Kingdom. Uh, they, in many respects, are our most important ally. Uh, and so for, for them to have any sort of upheaval in leadership is certainly something that, that we should be mindful of. I like how this story contrasted uh, the vote of confidence here for uh, Johnson with the vote of confidence that was taken with former Prime Minister Theresa May. And I don't know, this is just going to be something to watch. I've talked to a a number of friends who pay very close attention to British politics, and nearly all of them were coming back uh, with basically saying his days are now numbered. Um, And uh, you may be wondering, well, what, you know, what is at the center of this? Uh, There's, there's several things, but really what seems to be the item that has drawn the most public attention is the fact that during the 2020 COVID lockdowns uh, that were in place uh, in the UK and specifically in London, uh, evidence has emerged that Prime Minister Johnson and uh, officials around him, colleagues, friends, routinely violated uh, those lockdowns, uh, either with informal meetings uh, or uh, in some instances, get togethers like parties. And that has uh, caused a number of officials to say that he was, you know, not following uh, some of his own own procedures. And so just very interesting kind of, you know, how how different 
uh, cultures uh, have different political issues that they're dealing with. And certainly this is going to be one that that we follow with Prime Minister Johnson. Well, I'll tell you what I am paying attention to, well, what I was paying attention to in the UK, just because you brought this up. And it's not Boris Johnson. The Queen. It's the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. I didn't really watch a ton, but I love reading the this news stories. And Prince Louis was really the one who stole the show. There's so many memes and things especially on Instagram, so many stories of his faces and his interactions during that time, just giving his mom trouble and covering his ears and all that jazz. And of course, there's always the drama with Harry and Meghan. And they, I don't know if they just released, but there's a photo of their little girl, Lilibet, Diana. And she is a little cute thing. So yeah, on the other side of the pond, paying attention to that platinum jubilee. And yes. all things royal. So I have this secret desire. It's not secret, but it's one of those. You're a monarchist. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, I, I just is. want to be a princess. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be great, but that's just because I see the pictures of it. Well, you just want to be a royal. And well, the good news I is, in the Lord's eyes, yes. you are. You I are. Am. You, you are. Yep. For so. eternity. So. Okay, moving on. Uh, This week, the January 6th hearings will begin, and this story comes to us from Yahoo News. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol will hold its first primetime hearing on Thursday night, the first of a series of hearings stemming from its 11-month probe of events surrounding the deadly riot. Uh, While parts of the panel's investigation have been open to the public, The vast majority of the work has been done behind closed doors. During the past 11 months, the committee has been gathering evidence, including email, phone, and other records, issuing subpoenas, and conducting interviews with more than 860 people, including Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner, and Rudy Giuliani. In addition to any new testimony, these hearings will be the first time much of the information uncovered by the panel will be revealed to the public. Uh, so uh, this is really fascinating uh, to me and and honestly to several members of our team, particularly those who were working in Washington when the horrible events of uh, January 6, 2021 uh, occurred. And uh, that was truly a, a dark day, not just for our nation's politics, but just in our culture. And so this is going to be interesting. These these hearings are going to take place uh, during prime time. Uh, nearly all of the major news networks are, are going to cover it live. And there's going to be uh, like video, new videos uh, that are released. I, I, I know that the actually the vast majority of the security uh, footage from around the Capitol uh, has not yet been released. And so that's going to be a part of it. Uh, there, there's going to be some witness testimony that will be presented. And it's just, they have actually have contracted uh, with the gentleman who I believe was the executive producer of Dateline to come in and, and just help kind of put some order to this in terms of when the video evidence should be released. Uh, so this is, this seems to uh, be setting up for some fairly uh, significant political drama. So it will be certainly interesting. And I know a number of folks who listen uh, will will be paying attention to it. It will be fascinating to see uh, what they uncover. It really seems like that was a lifetime ago. (laughs) It's crazy. It really does. It really does. And then, you know, the next thing that will happen regarding this will be a movie that they'll make. 
It makes me think of the Boston bombing. I can totally see a movie being made about January 6th. Yeah. The events leading up to it and what all happened. The Boston Marathon. That was the one with Mark Wahlberg, mm-hmm. uh, Patriot Patriots Day. Patriots Day. Patriot, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this will be very interesting and sad to recount that we reached a place like that in our nation. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, we're obviously uh, recording this ahead of time. We we don't know exactly what all is, is going to be unveiled. But the, the story that we link to in the show notes is essentially a preview story. So, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Finally, just kind of uh, staying more directly in the political world, a number of primary elections were taking place across the country this week. And one in particular caught my attention. And it's caught the attention of quite a few folks around the country. And it is the recall election of the district attorney who serves in San Francisco. Uh, So CNN has this. San Francisco voters have recalled District Attorney Chesa Budin. CNN projects Budin was narrowly swept into office in 2019 amid voters' concerns over police misconduct, criminal justice reform, and mass incarceration in the city. His win was seen as a high point for the movement to elect more progressive prosecutor. So that's important. This His election was uh, viewed as, okay, this is like significant progress being made on the progressive side of the aisle. But then CNN continues with this. His tenure was defined by the coronavirus pandemic and an overwhelming sense among San Francisco residents that crime, especially property crime, was both out of control and not a priority for the district attorney. This caused the political winds to shift dramatically against Budin, with most San Francisco residents signaling on Tuesday that his laxer approach to certain kinds of crime was unacceptable. The recall was also much about the impressions people in San Francisco have of their own city as it was about crime rates. Homelessness and public drug use remain a persistent issue in the city, and residents have reported feeling uncomfortable in large swaths of commercial areas because of it. Budin sought to fight the recall effort by labeling it a natural reaction to the election of a progressive prosecutor and leaking the effort to Republicans and police unions. But those claims didn't move voters, many of whom said they had made up their minds based on how they felt in their city. And while Republican money did help the effort, the push to recall Budin was initially supported by Democrats. That is interesting to me. I mean, look, San Francisco is routinely characterized as as the most or one of the most liberal cities in America. And in many instances, that is absolutely true. And and so here, uh, you have an individual, uh, you know, he's got a a legal resume for, for sure, but it's clear he is coming in thinking through, how do I push forward with more progressive policies uh, that are easy uh, or go easier, I should say, on on certain uh, crimes. And a lot of people are saying that approach is what has led to where we are now. And voters have overwhelmingly said where we are now is unacceptable. And uh, that that is a detail in, in this in this election year that we're in, the midterm elections. Uh, I think that is something that uh, a number of Democrats, especially those who call themselves more progressive, uh, uh, probably should be paying attention to. uh, Because if voters in San Francisco uh, are feeling it, then probably voters elsewhere around the country 
they may have some similar sentiments. And uh, that is certainly something to be watching. Okay, so explain to me quickly what a recall is. So is that just in the midterms he was yeah. kicked out of office? or so, Yeah, California has a, a pretty strong recall procedure so that if there are elected officials uh, at various levels who, who are not doing a job that is satisfactory to a certain percent, I can't remember what the threshold is, uh, but there's a particular threshold that you have to meet ahead of an election, a certain amount of time ahead of an election uh, in order to recall uh, a state official. And that is what has happened here. Uh, a number of uh, voters in San Francisco, citizens of San Francisco, had signaled that eh, we are not uh, satisfied uh, with Budin's approach, and he needs to be recalled. And so it, it's kind of like, in a way, uh, a ballot initiative that's kind of like the vote of confidence that we talked about earlier with Prime Minister Johnson, only this means you're out of office uh, for sure. Uh, and so uh, I think now... Uh, a replacement is appointed to temporarily fill this uh, before uh, a new election can be called. But it's uh, that one was a very interesting election, and it's one that a lot of pollsters have signaled uh, was the likely outcome. Okay, thank you for that explanation. Yeah, well, if you recall, former uh, California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was actually elected in a recall. Gotcha. Yes. Okay. So uh, this is... I don't want to call it routine in California. I wouldn't say it's routine, but Californians are 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 known for every so often uh, recalling an official that they they don't think is uh, carrying out uh, his or her job the the way that they are anticipating it would be. And with that, Lindsay, that's your look at this week in culture. Well, thanks for that, Brent. And now it's time for the lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. I'm going to go first this time, Brent, because I don't want to leave our listeners with the news story that I am going to talk about in case it enters into their dreams and makes them nightmares. <laughs> this is a story from AP News. Disorder in the court. Cockroaches released during hearing. So a courthouse in upstate New York was closed for fumigation after hundreds of cockroaches were released during an altercation that broke out and an arraignment. So uh, there was a clash between four people who were um, arrested. The defendant started to film the courtroom proceedings and was told to stop. And in that altercation, hundreds of cockroaches were brought into the courthouse in plastic containers. And, well, they had been brought in and they were released. So it, it was, the courthouse was obviously closed for the rest of the day and um, it is being investigated. But that is just disgusting to me. If it had to be between me sitting in a tub full of snakes versus a tub full of cockroaches, I think I would pick snakes over cockroaches. That is just, just cockroaches just eke me out. I'm going to say, I think with this story, you were talking about uh, being a princess. I think you now own the crown for the grossest story uh, that we've talked about on the RLC podcast. So congrats, because this is... No, because I did the spider story about sp spiders in the mail. The illegal spiders yeah, in the mail or something. I think cockroaches are worse. They're, they're gross. Yeah, they're ooh, gross. They're pretty gross. So in Florida, which you would know this well, we'd have palmetto bugs. And you would know it well as well. I know. Well, And they fly at you. They do, and they're flying cockroaches. And they like to... 
fly at your face. And they are big. Yeah. And it's disgusting. Yeah. So there's that. They are not, I have rarely seen a cockroach here in Tennessee. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. You know what I hate about palmetto bugs? When they when they walk, they, they crack. Yeah. I remember, oh, I hate it. It's <laughs> disgusting. Gross. People okay. are being grossed out Night, right Nightmare fuel, folks. <clears throat> okay. Well, my story that I'm bringing to the lunchroom is very quick, just referring folks to a, another podcast in SBC Life, and it's SBC This Week with Jonathan Howe and Amy Whitfield. Uh, they have been doing this great podcast as a service to Southern Baptists for years. And um, in the lead up to uh, one week from now, we'll, we'll be in Anaheim for the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting. Uh, they just kind of go through a rundown uh, previewing all that may transpire at the annual meeting. And it's just, it's a great podcast. You should listen to it uh, every week if you're able after you listen to ours, of course. But it is it is highly informative because it really does give you a, a great sense of all that is going on around Southern Baptist life. And Amy is pretty much the queen of the SBC, or the princess of the SBC. I say, I want to be princess. She's already royal. She knows her stuff. She uh, is well-informed. She is talented. And so... Yeah, the two of them, you, yeah. the two of them are great. And so highly recommend this podcast for any of the folks who are listening who might be venturing out west to Anaheim, California for the 2022 SBC annual meeting. Uh, I hope to see you there. Come by the ERLC booth uh, in the exhibit hall and, and say hello. We'd, we'd love to say hi. Absolutely. And you can get a shirt. And uh, don't forget to bring your own plastic straws because you will not have them in California. And those uh, paper ones just dissolve in your mouth. It's pretty gross. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.